to direct your attention to are once again found in Mark chapter 14, and we will be finishing chapter 14 uh, this morning, and then next week we'll be blessed by hearing from uh, Michael Dean, David's brother, who will be preaching to us. But if you mention to Mark 14, verse 53, I'll begin reading unto the end of the chapter. It says in verse 53, They led Jesus away to the high priests, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, prophesy. The officers received him with slaps in the face. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You were with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. And he went out onto the porch. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, This is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you're a Galilean too. But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you were talking about. Immediately a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. When Mary Tudor took the throne of England, she immediately had the leaders of the Protestant movement in that country incarcerated. And among those who were imprisoned were Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. On Wednesday, October 16th, 1555, uh, Latimer and Ridley were led out to make a last good confession, as they called it. And as they were secured to the stake, Latimer called out to his friend, 
Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Latimer encouraged Ridley with these words because he knew as his friend would face the flames of fire that he might be tempted to waver in his convictions or in his faith. And so to inspire and strengthen him, he told him to play the man. And those words were highly significant because those were the same words that were spoken to Polycarp, the early church martyr who also faced the flames of persecution. And Latimer knew that the words would strengthen his friend by recalling that he was not the first to testify to his faith in Christ with his life. And he gave testimony to his faith in his death. And the key word in this passage before us is the word testimony. It occurs uh, seven times. And the word testimony, as some of you might know, is the Greek word martyrio, from which we get the word martyr. Martyrs are those who bear testimony to what they believe with their lives. They, they prove what they believe. They witness what they believe with their life. And this passage is all about testimonies or a witness. And that's why we see both true testimonies and false testimonies in this courtroom proceedings. It begins with the Jews giving false testimonies of what Jesus has said. And then Jesus gives an accurate testimony to himself when questioned. And then it concludes with Peter giving the prophesied false testimony of him being a follower of Christ. And the courtroom setting of this passage points back to chapter 139, when Jesus told his followers to be on your guard, for they will deliver you to courts and you will be flogged in the synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. And in this passage, Mark 13, 9, tells us how it should apply. Mark 13.9 tells us what Jesus wants us to learn from this account of the false testimonies, of his true testimony, and of Peter's false testimony. When you are drugged before courts, when, or when you are questioned regarding your faith, and you will be questioned regarding your faith, this is how you need to respond, and this is how you should not respond. Do not lie but give a true testimony to them. And Jesus said this to his followers back in Mark 13 because he wants them to know what's on the horizon. What is it that they should expect when they choose to follow him, when they choose to get baptized? What should a Christian expect? And I think really up till now, in our lives, the the prospect of being persecuted for our faith might have seemed pretty dim. But given current events in our culture and nation, as Americans, all the more 
we need to be prepared to suffer. We need to prepare to be persecuted. Now, the majority of our brothers and sisters throughout the world have always had this expectation. But as Americans, we need to be honest, it probably wasn't likely that we were going to suffer much for our faith. But we would be naive to assume that we won't suffer now. So now more than ever, we need to take heed of what Jesus says here. So that if and probably when our time comes to bear testimony, whether it's to courts, whether it's to governors, whether it's to our co-workers or even family members or our neighbors, when the time comes for us to bear testimony to what we truly believe, that we won't falter, that we won't fail. We need to be prepared. And this passage is given to prepare us. And it begins, as you know, with the false testimonies of the Jews in verse 53. It says, They led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests, and the elders, and the scribes were gathered together. This is, this is again, the religious leadership of Jerusalem. The most respected people in the society. The, the people with power. They held Jesus' life in their hands. These were the people you would have turned to in your hour of need. And they were the ones seeking to kill Christ. They were the ones that would eventually seek to kill his followers. Which is why Peter followed him at a distance, it says, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Uh, verses 53 and 54 are there to provide us the setting for all that takes place. Again, it's a courtroom setting. After seizing Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, his followers fell away, and the religious leaders and the accompanying soldiers take him to the house of the high priest, who was Caiaphas at this time. His followers scattered, but some followed. We, we knew that one man at least was seized and we saw in the previous verses that he was left, um, left his linen sheet behind him and escaped naked. Also, Peter followed all the way into the courtyard, obviously at a considerable distance. And he follows them all the way into uh, the fire that was in the courtyard. And he sat amongst the officers who had just taken Jesus into custody. This is ironic because Peter is now sitting with the very men who just moments later would beat Jesus and mock Jesus and spit on his face. Peter has aligned himself with Christ's enemies around a fire. He has chosen the path of hypocrisy and secrecy in order that he might preserve his dignity and his security. And while Peter's Peter's hiding himself in the truth. Jesus is in the home of the high priest having to hear false accusations get leveled against him by the whole council of religious leaders. That, that word whole council is the, the Sanhedrin. And it was the governing body of all the Jewish leaders. It, it consisted of 71 members, scribes and elders, uh, people in the high priestly family, the high priests themselves. The high priest was the president of the body. 
And they get gathered because in order to put Jesus to death, which was clearly their objective, before there's even a trial, they have an objective, which just shows that this is just a farce. But they had this objective to put him to death. And in order to put him to death, according to the law, based on Deuteronomy 19.15, the crime needed to be substantiated by two witnesses. And so they, they figure, well, there's lots of people we can gather to bear witness to what this man has said. But none of the witness they conjured up had testimonies that agreed. And so their whole plan to put Jesus to death was just crumbling before their very eyes. It was falling apart. The closest that came, they came to credible testimony was a misquotation of Jesus back two years earlier in his ministry. Back uh, in John chapter 2. And in verse 19, or verse 18, it says this. The Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Again, this was years earlier. The first time Jesus cleansed out the temple. And so these Jews misquote Jesus, but ironically, the very words that they misquote were a prophecy that was at that very moment being fulfilled. Unbeknownst to them, they were fulfilling Jesus' words. They were proving that everything Jesus said was absolutely true. They were seeking to destroy the very temple Jesus was speaking of. And three days later, Jesus would raise this temple that they would destroy from the dead. The testimony brought against Jesus was absolutely false. But Jesus' words that I quote from years later even were absolutely true. It reminds one of uh, Romans 3, 4. When Paul says, let God be true, though every man were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Even when Jesus was judged falsely, his truth prevailed. This brings us to the true testimony of Jesus in verse 60. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer what it is that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. The religious leaders planned to have Jesus killed. Again, it's, it's falling apart right before their very eyes. And so in exasperation, the high priest himself stands up and decides to take matters into his own hands. He directly confronts Jesus with this question, asking why he would not defend himself. He wants to provoke Jesus to condemn himself or at least to discredit himself. And notice Jesus' response. He kept silent. He didn't defend himself. 
And likewise, the Christian's agenda in following Christ, it's not to defend ourselves, but to proclaim the truth. Jesus was silent until he was asked about the truth. And then he preached the gospel in a few words. He was falsely accused and he remained silent. This really gives us the pattern for how we should respond when we likewise are falsely accused, when we are slandered and accused of doing things we've never done. One of the, one of the hardest things a person can face is to be falsely accused. It's wrong. It's humiliating. And what's worse is that people will believe the lie more readily than they will believe the truth. There's just something sick in people, in us, that we like hearing about the failures or faults of other people, that we are more prone to believe the worst about them than actually to believe the truth. Some of you, even in this room, have have been horrifically slandered and paid a really incomprehensible price and justice was not done. I myself have been falsely accused and it's, it's, I would say it's maybe the, the most painful thing I've ever had to go through. To, to, to know that people believing something that has no credibility at all And it's hard to remain silent. False accusations have always accompanied genuine believers, though. The early church was accused of committing incest and cannibalism. And the reason was because outsiders would hear, uh, would see uh, the brothers and sisters in the faith give one another a holy kiss in greeting them. And they think, well, their brothers and sisters are kissing each other? Or they would see believers eating and drinking the blood of their Lord and the body of their Lord. Cannibalism. Gross misrepresentations. And yet people believed it. And on account of that, they were persecuted. Consider these words of Paul from 2 Corinthians chapter 6. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. This is how servants of God demonstrate their servants of God. Verse 8, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we lived, as punished and yet not killed. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, and yet possessing everything. So how should Christians respond when falsely accused? I think we need to remember that we died to ourselves the day we were baptized. We need to have Acts 20, 24 sealed upon our eyeballs. And we need to remember that verse when that time comes. When we are called to give a testimony 
in the face of false accusations, knowing that no matter what we say, our words are going to get twisted or we are going to be misconstrued so that we could be humiliated. This is what Paul said in Acts 20, 24. But I do not count my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That is the summary of the Christian life. We don't count our lives dear to ourselves anymore. Our reputation is not what matters most to us. It shouldn't. When we were baptized, we committed to no longer live for ourselves, but to live for him who died and rose again our behalf. And when Paul makes that statement in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he then says, and we are ambassadors of Christ. Our goal as Christians is to be ambassadors to proclaim the truth, not to defend ourselves, not to protect our own reputation, not to protect our families from slander or humiliation. Our goal is to see the truth of God proclaimed to believers, to unbelievers, so that believers might grow up in the faith and be strengthened and so that unbelievers might be saved. We are silent in the face of false accusation, but we are bold when it comes to the gospel. Our concern is to have unbelievers in particular, well, believers, both believers and unbelievers, but we want unbelievers to have a right conception of who Jesus is. We want to correct their error. We want them to see that there can be a salvation even for them. And what people think of us should be of little account, as Paul said. And let's not be naive. It hurts immensely to be lied about. It's humiliating. It's hard for any believer to hear of a lie, let alone one that's directed against them. But again, the truth about Jesus is what matters most, not the truth about us. But you have to, I say that now because you're going to have to believe that when the time comes. What people matter, what matters most is not what people believe about you, but what they, what they believe about Jesus. And just rest knowing the day will come when the truth is known. When you will be vindicated. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, It's required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purpose of the heart. Then, 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 then each one's praise will come from God. Brothers and sisters, we have to learn to wait for that day. You will probably be lied about. People will accuse you of being homophobic, racist, uh, hate-filled. They'll accuse you of being a Nazi or a fascist because you simply believe in Christ. But we should not be concerned so much about defending ourselves, but defending the truth. 
And Jesus, again, he's a perfect example. Jesus remains silent in the face of all these false accusations, which is why the high priest became so exasperated. He wanted Jesus to defend himself. And therefore, because he just assumed, well, any, any, I would, if I was accused, I would want to defend myself. But he doesn't understand Christ. Christ doesn't live for himself, but he lives for God. And so he directly confronts Jesus asking, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And notice the high priest doesn't even say, are you Yahweh? He doesn't even say, are you God? Are you the son of God? He says the blessed one. And the reason he says the blessed one is because he's hyper concerned about not using the name of God. He doesn't want to take the name of God in vain. Over applying that commandment. While at the same time. Attempting to get a man killed in direct violation of the sixth commandment. It's not just ironic. That he's doing this. It is the sickest form of hypocrisy. He doesn't care about the God or the law at all. All he cares about is getting this man killed. And so he puts Jesus on the spot with this question. And Jesus can either deny the truth and save his skin with a lie, like Peter, or he can tell the truth. What does Jesus do? Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, and coming with the clouds of heaven. They no- notice that Jesus is not afraid to use the word I am. Ego a me in the Greek. He's, he is declaring I am, I am, I am God, I am Yahweh. Because he is Yahweh. He is the Messiah. He is the one prophesied in Psalm 110 and in Daniel 7.13. He, he's quoting messianic texts. So, although Jesus can stand by silent when falsely accused, when all the religious leaders, all the respectable people in Israel are lowering incense, or lowering, uh, throwing accusations falsely at him, wanting him to be humiliated and eventually killed, he can stand silent in front of all of that. But when questioned, about the gospel, he speaks. He cannot remain silent about the gospel. And he proclaims with unabashed boldness that he is the Christ. Because he cared more about the truth and people hearing the truth than he did with his reputation, than he did with his life. He cared about the truth. He wanted them to know the truth. And and such is the allotment for all who choose to follow Christ. We care more about the truth. And that that will often turn to our humiliation or condemnation. So the question is, are you ready for that? Are you ready to be slandered, lied about? Are you ready to lose possessions? Be separated from family members. 
Have your name slandered across the internet. Put on national news. False accusations, all of it. Are you ready for that? You ready for the people even in this church to believe something that's not true about you? Are you preparing your kids for that? And I think we really need to think soberly about that. I think so much in America, our agenda with especially raising children has been to raise them in safe, secure environments that they would never have their feelings hurt, that they would not be wanting, that they would grow in self-esteem. And I think even in, even the best parents fall trapped to being a little too protective. Especially in light of what Jesus says people should expect. If, you, if you're going to be a good Christian parent, you need to prepare them to be good Christians. Which means they need to be ready. They need to learn how to experience loss. They need to learn how to experience pain and humiliation. And you need to exemplify that to them. Because they're not going to learn it if you're not being an example. If we're not being an example as a church. So how can we prepare ourselves? Let's just start with ourselves. How can we prepare ourselves for the hour of testing? Well, I think it begins with just with the firm conviction that we don't live for ourselves, but for the truth. Acts 20, 24. And to remember that, especially in that moment. What matters is not what my friend thinks of me, not what a person assumes about my motivations or my heart, but what they understand about the truth. Did I tell the truth? And secondly, I think to do that, to put, our, to put ourselves uh, in that position, we need to now devote ourselves to ministry. And I, I feel like I don't emphasize this enough. What is going to get you to care more about people knowing the truth than just your own life, your own well-being, your own reputation, is devoting yourself to ministry. And I'm not talking about serving in helping the infrastructure of like a Sunday morning work. We need that. That's true. But what I'm particularly talking about is devoting yourself to helping another person grow in the faith or devoting yourself to reaching unbelievers with the gospel, waking up day after day after day saying, this is why I live. And you can devote yourself to ministry, um, to, to ministering to people that are more mature than you. You don't have to be the most mature. Wives are called to be helpers to their husbands. They might be more mature than their husbands. They might not be, but they can still serve. They can still help them. You can, you can lead a discipleship group. You can, you can lead a discussion of a book with people that are more mature than you, either spiritually or just in age. Devote yourself to helping people you know grow in the Lord. And as you do that, as that becomes the priority, you will find you care less and less about yourself and your own ambitions. And you care more and more 
about the, these people growing and remaining steadfast. And that's one of the main reasons you should be coming to church, not just to have your own soul fed, but to see that those people that you've been praying about and devoting yourself to earlier in the week are also getting fed. In fact, you might, there may even be a, a, a twinge of pain when, when somebody's absent because you realize, man, they might be missing out. And you care about their growth. You care about their security in Christ. So two things. Recognize that as a Christian, you no longer live for yourself, but for Christ. And, and what matters is not your reputation, but the truth about Christ. And secondly, devote yourself to that reality. Devote your life to ministering to other people, helping them grow in the faith or come to faith in Christ. Peter, the greatest of the apostles, thought that he was ready for that test. He thought he was ready to give the good testimony. But he was absolutely wrong. And that's how this chapter concludes with his false testimony. After sitting by the fire for a while, Peter is confronted by a servant girl. Servant girl, note of the high priest. You remember the last time Peter was interacting with the servant of the high priest? Yeah, he was, he was cutting off an ear. All boldness. I'll never deny you. Though everybody else deny you, I'll protect you. Well, it's easy to wave swords and be bold when the Lord of the universe, who could calm a storm with a word, is standing behind you. When all your buddies are looking on and applaud, applauding, thinking, man, wow, Peter, you're so courageous. But when he's all alone, standing beside a fire, surrounded by enemies, the officers, he lies to a servant girl of the high priest. And, and it's a, it's, she's described as a servant girl, the high priest, to provoke our minds back to Peter's attack on the other high priest's servant. In relative comfort, Peter appeared to be pretty courageous. And I think for us, it's easy to imagine ourselves, maybe even now, sitting in an air-conditioned auditorium, surrounded by friends, people we know love us. It's easy to imagine ourselves being questioned about our faith and boldly proclaiming the truth. It's easy to imagine, but what is true won't be known until we're tested. See, what we imagine isn't necessarily what's true. What the truth is often seen in the trials. Peter's denials and false testimony here, put him in the same camp as the Jews who false testified against Christ. You have false testimony, true testimony, and then another false testimony. Peter, despite all his active imagination, is no better than the Jews who were accusing Christ. He's aligned himself with the, long side, with the wrong side. Despite all of his bold imagination about himself, his denials are just as bad as their lies, if not worse. 
just as he previously vowed he would never deny Christ, he vehemently vows now that he never knew him. In fact, that uh, in both cases, he passionately swore. And that word curse there, where he says he began to curse and swear, that, that word is anathema. He's saying, let me be anathema if I know this Jesus. And Peter wasn't just lying to a little girl. He was lying to himself. In fact, he was lying, he'd been lying to himself this whole time. Imagining himself to be something he wasn't. How easy it is to deceive ourselves. And this is why Christians count it all joy when they suffer various kinds of trials. James chapter 2. James 1, 2. Consider what Peter says years later in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. Again, same man who denied Christ. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why do you rejoice? Verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Believers rejoice in trials because trials expose what we truly believe. Believers want to know they're genuine. And sometimes what believers need to realize is they're genuine, but what they, but, but what they really, the, their steadfastness is a lot more brittle than they think, like Peter. Peter was a genuine believer, or at least he would be. And this trial just exposed that at least what he thought of himself wasn't true. And so when you face trials, whether the trial exposes, you don't really believe. Or whether the trial exposes, that's, you're genuine. Nonetheless, the trial is a blessing because it tells you the truth. And again, believers care more about the truth than they do about their own comforts, than they do about themselves and their own reputations. They care about the truth and other people knowing the truth about Christ. And so the trials at least tell us the truth about ourselves. And I think they also testify to an unbelieving world. The truth about ourselves and the truth of Christ in us. When we pass the test. I think usually the best thing that can happen to a person is to realize their own self-deception. And so you, can, you need to see the mercy of God here with Peter. And I think that's why Peter was confronted three times, not just to fulfill the prophecy, but for Peter, Peter to really see what he believed. Three times he denied it. Peter needed to see how rotten his heart really was, how self-loving he really was. He needed to come to an end of himself. He needed to break down and weep. God was disciplining Peter here 
so that he could go and bear fruit. God was helping Peter become what Peter thought he was. But in order to become what he thought he was, he needed to see what he really was. And it's so important for us to realize because we are going to be tried. We are going to be persecuted at some level. And it's so important that we see where we really are at. And so don't fall apart completely when you realize you're not as godly as you might have thought you were. But recognize what the truth is. And recognize what God's doing in helping you see the truth. He's wanting you to be what you want to be. He's bringing you there. But until He levels you, He can't bring you to where you need to be. Those who are humbled are the ones that get exalted. Sure, Peter failed. But then after failing, John 21, Christ picked Peter back up, dusted him off, and sent him right back into the fight. This is not the end of Peter's story. And your failures aren't going to be the end of your story. People often say that failure is a good teacher, and it is. But again, I think, biblically speaking, failure is so good because it just shows us how rotten how fearful, how weak we really are. We're not as bold and as wise and as godly as we like to think. And it's God's great mercy to expose how greatly we need His grace. And so even though we might fail miserably, even as Peter did, again, knowing the truth about ourselves, we then need to run to Christ in repentance. The story is not written. Sometimes that failure in that test is just a means to bring us to where we want to be. After Queen Mary executed Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, she then turned her wrath especially against the leader of the Protestant church in England, the Archbishop of Canterbury, whose name was Thomas Cranmer. After watching the executions of his friends, Latimer and Ridley, from the tower where he was imprisoned, Cranmer agreed to sign a series of recantations. And in the recantations, he claimed to have forsaken all the Protestant teachings that he had ever taught. And he reaffirmed all the Catholic doctrines that he had repudiated. In other words, He was a complete turncoat. Cranmer's recantation was then distributed throughout the kingdom. And despite the recantation and its publication, he was still condemned to die. And when he was taken to the place of his execution and given an opportunity to publicly announce his recantation to watching crowds, this is what he said. And now I come to the great thing which so much troubles my conscience, more than anything I ever did or said in my whole life. 
And that is the setting abroad of a writing contrary to the truth, which now I here renounce and refuse as things written by my hand, contrary to the truth, which is in my heart and written for fear of death and to save my life, if it might be. And that is all such bills and papers which I have written or signed with my hand since my degradation, wherein I have written many things untrue. And for as much as my hand offended, writing contrary to my heart, my hand shall be first punished for it. For when I come to the fire, it shall be first burned. He recanted his recantation. And true to his word, as he came to the flames, he thrust his right arm into the fire and held it there and declared my unworthy right hand, my unworthy right hand until he was consumed in the flames. Cranmer failed horribly. The leader of the Protestant cause. And yet he repented gloriously. He learned from Peter. And likewise, we may not always pass the test of persecution. Sometimes we will. But in either case, we need to look to Christ. We need to run to Christ. He is our strength. He is our refuge. He's the one that strengthens us for success and He's the one that restores us after our failures. Let's pray. Lord, we don't know what You have before us. Lord, it's, it's hard to imagine loss as a reality. And Lord, we also we confess that we like it's just so much easier to think of ourselves more highly than is proper. And so, Lord, I do pray that you would test us, reveal what's in our hearts, that we might know the truth, so that we might speak the truth. But I do pray for my brothers and sisters here because our desire is to honor you, to bear testimony to the truth, that you would strengthen us in that hour. That we would be bold despite what loss may incur. That we may be bold with the truth even as you were Christ. And even as Cranmer eventually was and Latimer and Ridley and even Peter in his last hours. Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.